Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll, and let's just go for it. The Duff McKagan joke of the week. Hey, uh, Chris Jericho, it's Duff McKagan. You know, I'm in uh, New Orleans with my wife. Hey. Susan. She told me to stop acting like a, a flamingo. Tried to put my foot down. Thank you very much. Ah, uh, yeah, I'll say this. Duff never misses a Friday. <laughs> Thanks to our resident rock and roll hall of famer slash jokester for always starting our weekends with a laugh or uh, an attempt at a laugh. But uh, what is no laugh is Court Bauer uh, is really making some waves in the pro wrestling world with Major League Wrestling, MLW. And he's here today. He's got a huge pay-per-view coming November 2nd. It's called Super Fight. You can pre-order at MLW.TV or on the Fight TV app. It's also going to be available in traditional pay-per-view TV platforms for just $19.95. Going to be a great show with some incredible talent. We're going to talk about some of the people that Court has got working for MLW, including Jacob Fatu, a nephew of the late, great uh, Edward Fatu, a.k.a. Eki, a.k.a. Umaga. Uh, the Von Eriks, uh, the third generation there, Ross and Marshall, Kevin's kids, Selena De La Renta, and even MJF, who you guys know from AEW. He's doing a little bit of a co-work with uh, MLW. Court's also talking about their relaunch as a promotion and not just a podcast network uh, just a couple of years ago, how much has grown in the last year alone. And Court's also going to talk about his time as a writer for WWE. Some great stories about uh, VKM, Vince McMahon and his daughter, Stephanie helping to create Umaga's gimmick and uh, the angle with Donald Trump. What do you remember about the infamous ba- uh, battle of the billionaires between Vince and Donald? Uh, lots of great stories. Here we go. Court Bauer starts now talking MLW on Talk is Jericho. So, uh, like I was saying, in the midst of the wrestling resurgence, where you have all this talk about NXT and WWE and AEW and New Japan and Impact on Access, uh, another company that's getting a lot of steam, kind of uh, slowly but steadily over the last few years, is MLW, and uh, spearheaded by Court Bauer. Now, first and foremost, Court, um, you have to refresh my memory. I know you used to work for WWE, but have we ever met before? Dude, I was trying to figure it out. We first met actually in April of 2000. You were kind enough to come out to the Gary Albright Memorial Show. Right. And WWF at the time had sent talent down to Allentown for, to raise money for, for Gary's family. And at that point, I, was, uh, I came up through the Simone family and was booking their shows. So when we heard WWF was coming to town to help uh, with his cause, it was incredible. And that night you wrestled Eddie Guerrero. And it was a, fan, a fantastic match. You guys had to follow uh, Moss Man and Johnny Smith, who's a crazy, incredible wrestler that people have probably forgotten about. But Calgary he was phenomenal. Guy. Yep. And uh, you guys were on, on after that. And I was like, holy, yeah, I remember that like it was yesterday and it was 19 years ago. Uh, but that was the first time I think we met. And then the next time we met was when I was at WWE. Uh, and when I started as a, as a writer there on the much beleaguered creative team, um, I was shadowing Stephanie and Vince. And so Stephanie typed up this promo one day, I think we're in Bridgeport. And she goes, Hey, would you give this to Chris Jericho? I said, sure. And I have no idea what it is other than she printed it out and there was something on there. And, and I, you're talking to Helms ringsides before doors open. She goes, I said, uh, Hey, Stephanie would like you to take a look at this. You look at it, you crumple it up and then toss it behind uh, you're back and keep talking. Like, oh, I was like, all right. I was like, well, what the f- do I do with this? And I go back to Stephanie. She goes, what did he think? What did he think of the promo? I go, oh, 
uh, he's he's definitely looking it over. I'll, I'll let you know. I'm like, I gotta I gotta find someone else to do something with. Maybe I'll find Vince or something. But I was like, I don't I don't know what to tell you here. You gave me a, you gave you gave me basically I think guess now in retrospect a, a scripted promo to hand to Chris, who's a great promo, and you're expecting me just to just take the bullet for that. I was like, you couldn't have get like a legit loaded gun. I was like, yeah, this is why writers get heat because that that's that's insane. <laughs> yeah, man. I, uh, apology to all writers out there. I've done that for years. Uh, I usually crumple up <laughs> and throw it at the guy. Um, which because here's here's the thing from my standpoint, and you know, I want to talk about this because it's very interesting yeah. to me. There there was a period, even now. I mean, I haven't been there in a couple of years, but there's such a, a revolving door of writers. Now, obviously, you have the Ed Koskies and the Dave Kapoor's who are there constants, but but the other guys come and go so fast yeah. that you wouldn't even know their names for a lot of points in time. So, um, how long were you there for? Uh, how did you get in and how did you get out? <laughs> I was there for two and a half years. Two, I came in in uh, 2005 and left uh, the summer of 2007 and came in with the recommendation of Afa, the Wild Simone, and head shrinker Sam Liu, which when you're going to do a resume, those are great referrals for any sure, job, of course. Uh, especially at WWE, <laughs> which actually is the best place for it. And I was on the SmackDown team. You were at that point primarily I think on raw when they had different writing teams and stuff. So, uh, I was pretty much out of your orbit for most of that run. And I also, I also left in that time period too. I think it's yeah. SummerSlam 05 till mid 2007. So I think that's probably why I don't recall having a lot of, uh, interaction with you because I wasn't there. We weren't there at the same time for long. Yeah, pretty much. And, and I left at 07, basically just starting a family with my wife I had kind of just decided, wanted to move on. Uh, I was in the midst of their handling of the Chris Benoit thing, which, you know, was very uncomfortable. And they're having the writing team try to be part of the damage control PR crisis team. I'm like, this is not the gig. And this is not how you really should handle this. Hold on, explain that to me. Cause I've never heard about it from this side of the coin before. Obviously I've dealt with it just since it happened from yeah. my side and from the, but tell me about it from, from your side. That's really interesting. Well, it's just like one day we go in there and Vince is looking at several monitors saying he's going to be called to Congress. And we're like, Oh, you know, this is pretty heavy stuff and horrible, sad, tragic stuff. And Vince being, you know, kind of, you know, the, this master of the universe always likes to have control of something. And so we basically get holed up there and trying to figure out what the messaging is going to be from the company about the situation. And they're batting around different ideas. I'm just like, there, there's, you get, you gotta, you have the money, hire the right people to do this. Like the creative team isn't Michael Hayes pitching ideas on this is probably not the best path for any of us. So you know, it was just weird. And, and it was just a hard time because, you know, there's a lot of things put, being put out there at the time, which just were just kind of strange and, and weird and at that time, too, I was trying to really move on to do something in MMA, and whether it was UFC or Strike Force. And uh, at that moment in time, uh, Versus Network, which uh, would now be the NBC Sports Network, was out of Stanford. And they had a lot of NHL then. They had NHL and WEC, World Extreme Cage Fighting, which is what uh, Zufa had just acquired. It was a smaller league, like their version of ECW with uh, Uriah Faber and stuff. And so I reached out to Dana White and I said, hey, because uh, I had a mutual friend, I said, Could, I'd love to have a conversation. And one thing led to another and their people were coming to town to meet about WEC. And I went from meeting with Vince McMahon on 
around like 6.30 on a Friday night to meeting with these guys and just started my kind of my pathway out of there. It just felt like it was a time to exit with everything going on. Wrestling for me wasn't fun. Uh, there was a heaviness there. It's you know, it just a sad time. And I'm not judging how WWE handled it, really. It's just like, I just felt like it was time to move on. So was this kind of like you're talking about uh, like like the Monday night after after the, the event happened? Or are you just talking about the week after Monday? It, it was like that whole, it was like that month. I like I left in late July and I was having problems at the time, you know, with Michael Hayes and, you know, Freebird's Freebird. But, you know, when you're, when you're not on the same page as Michael, it's, it's very difficult. Right. And I always thought I'd have a great relationship with him because one of my mentors was the late Gary Hart. And for whatever reason, it didn't work out that way. And, you know, it, it's fine. But uh, just the combination wasn't really fun at work. And then this horrible tragedy happens. And I was like, yeah, let's, 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 let's look out there. So basically they were trying to have you guys write the, like you said, instead of hiring like a crisis management team, they're trying to have the writers do it. Yeah. I think they were certainly checking with everyone. You know, they're probably checking with the, the Basil DeVitos of the world and all these different people to give them input on what to do. This is a very unique situation that you, they probably could not never anticipate happening. So they were just trying to probably get, input from as many people as they could. Gotcha. And, you know, it's just, there was like one time during that, that spell, it's like my grandmother was dying and I was going to visit her and they're like, you need to get the Stephanie's assistant said, you know, they need you back in the office to be part of this crisis meeting. And I'm like, I'm a freaking writer. I come up with ideas. I suggest them. And it's up to Vince to, to sign off. That's all I can do. This is something totally out of my lane. I'm going to say goodbye to my grandmother and I'll be back when I'm done. And they're like, so what do I tell Stephanie? I was like, tell her that because yeah, I don't know what else to tell yeah, you. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, it's a, it's a weird situation. So who, who was, uh, when you were there for, for two and a half years, what were some of the ideas that you had? Like, what's your, what's your, your claim to fame from your time at WWE? Well, you know, it's, everyone, you know, has their ideas and, you know, you basically end up being a suggester to, to Vince, right? You're just a monkey with a keyboard. So, you know, I don't want to, be self-aggrandizing with any of that stuff because at the end of the day, whether it's a good idea or a bad idea, Vince is the one that's stamping it. Whether it's a pre-tape, he's approving or whatever. It's like you're just part of that process. The thing I'm most proud of would be Umaga. Uh, mm. Eki, Eki and I went way back from the late 90s with right. Maddie and Hawaii uh, and the whole Simone family. So originally when they were going to bring back Three Minute Warning, uh, the plan was just to bring him back. And then when Vince saw him gorilla. Eki, after doing a tour in Japan, how much fire he had. He just had leveled up since his last tour of duty here. And Vince goes, no, this, we're, we're bringing him back, but we're not doing three-minute warning, which was bad news for, for Maddie, a.k.a. Rosie, superhero in training. Right. And he was kind of like, they, we signed him, and then nothing happened with Eki for a while. And Vince was like, you know, he told the Raw uh, writing team, like, what are you doing? And somehow, someway, it came up that I had a background with the Samoans. He said, well, all right, now you're assigned to it. Figure out what to do with this guy. And uh, very quickly, it was going into WrestleMania in Chicago. Uh, Eki and I got on the phone, and we just figured out the Umaga character, kind of tipping her hat towards the past, but also being very forward, future-centered. And that, to me, was probably my highlight. Mm. I, just an awesome guy, awesome to see him break out. And what a big first splash with Flair and doing stuff with Cena. Um, and he, we needed a big main event attraction. Um, I also was involved with, you know, creating other monsters like Great Kali and, and guys like that. Mm -hmm. uh, on the SmackDown side, you were developing a lot of talent from OVW, creating new characters or creating new heels and creating that that monster machine for the babies. You know, whether it was uh, Batista uh, or Cena uh, on the on the Raw side. 
Yeah, man, Eki was um he, he was so great. Like he 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 was probably the best of the crop of Samoans. I mean, you could go back a little bit to Big Sam and I mean, Yokozuna was good too, but I mean, Eki was was all of those things because he was agile, he was big. I love the gimmick that he was a wild Samoan, but he wasn't like you know eating raw fish on the nope. beach. You know, he uh, that that was one of I mean, your Vince's WWE's greatest creations. I'd have to say for that time frame. Yeah, you know, it's like it, 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 I didn't want it to be something that was a stereotype, but I also wanted just to to have that cultural thing in there because guys like Samoa Joe, they're they're proud of it. They want it out there, but yeah, they, you don't want it to be like, oh, they're savages. They don't they, they're illiterate. They don't speak English. It's all these, you know, none of that. Mm-hmm. We want him to be very much in the here and now. And uh, one of the funny things is, you know, he had that face paint, the Minori face paint. And originally, I said, what if we did like like the fake take or where they had like the like temporary tattoos that would be on the guy's sleeves for, you know, like a month or two. Uh, and I remember Eki saying, Hey bro, it was, you do that first to your face and then I'll do it. I was like, all right, maybe we'll just do face paint. Instead. <laughs> <laughs> but he was an awesome guy. Awesome guy, larger than life. Yeah. A freak of an athlete. Uh, just the biggest smile and just light up a room. Uh, and you never wanted to mess with the dude. Yeah, I was uh, pretty close to him from my time there, and he uh, helped me out a few times in situations when I when I needed somebody to help me. And I vivid, vividly remember when he passed away. We were in um, uh, Saudi Arabia, not sorry, I'm sorry, Iraq, doing the um, yeah. the you know the the trip, tribute to the troops. And I remember how um, how legit sad Vince was about it because at the time I think they had let him go because he wouldn't go to rehab. And I remember Vince just really saying, like, I, I tried. I, I did not want this to happen, but I couldn't do anything. Like, if you're not going to do it on your own, there's nothing we can do. But he was legit, like, he was torn up about it. Because I think Eki, in his mind, had so much more he could have done if he hadn't fallen into those traps that happened to so many of the brothers over the years. So many. And he was he could have made so much more money. And, you know, to see that happen, and, and it happened fast, you know, it you see where he was in like 07, 08, and then, you know, having those troubles, it really just, it just, yeah. it just took him over. It took him over. And just, I was actually just talking about his funeral with uh, his, his nephew, uh, Jacob Fatu, who, who works for us. And Jacob is the next uh, Umaga, the next Eki Fatu. Just, he's a little smaller, but he's just as big of an athlete. Everyone compares the two, mm-hmm. but we were talking about just, this this he was just entering his prime. I mean, Vince could have done so much and drawn so much money with this guy for so many years, and it just barely scratched the surface. But in his first, you know, just brief run, it was a very short run, relatively speaking. It was like two, three years at WWE. During that time, uh, he was part of the main the WrestleMania with, that had the biggest box office, biggest pay per view buy rate of all time, which was the, the Battle of the Billionaires with Lashley and and, and Umaga. And he with Trump he was and so, Vince, yeah, yes, with Trump and Vince, and he was he was totally game for that. And originally it was supposed to be instead of Bobby Lashley, we had Rey Mysterio in there. Oh and wow! Then the, then the thought was, well, why would why would Donald pick him? He wants someone big, and that's why Bobby got it. And unfortunately, Ray didn't get that WrestleMania payday. But um, <laughs> you know, it, 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 that was a great match, and it was you know it was a classic WrestleMania thing with the special referee outside with with Austin and the head shaving and stuff. And I always thought it was funny. Because we pitch a lot of the times, you know, loser gets their head shaved and Vince like, God, that's so Memphis. Why would we ever do that? And of course, we all laughed when Vince said, what if I had my head shaved one day? <laughs> so, it's genius. <laughs> it's genius. That was a great idea. 
Who was Trump uh, like to work with? You know, it was interesting because the crowds were kind of hostile towards him to the point where I remember we would we would have money fall from the ceiling once as a babyface move to get the crowd behind him and stuff. And, you know, he he, he never sold it when, if they were hostile. Because the thing wrestling fans, it wasn't political at that time. He was just a reality guy uh, from The Apprentice. It was cross-promoting the NBC properties. Uh, and I think more or less, I think fans were just like, we want to see wrestling. We don't want to have a 20-minute promo from this guy. And I think that's what they were rejecting at that moment. But I think it kind of groomed him for political aspirations because, sure. <laughs> you know, it's the same thing as, a, as, you know, in wrestling, you're just trying to take a fan base with them into a frenzy and convert them into buying tickets. He's just trying to convert them into voters here. And, you know, you have your catchphrases and the ways you heal on, on your opponent. Same thing there. Uh, so there's a lot, you know, you look back and it's like, this was probably his breeding ground to, to, to do something else similar. Like a lot of people from wrestling get into politics here or in Japan. Um, but yeah, it was interesting seeing the Vince Donald dynamic and just seeing kind of the, the measuring going on. Well, cause they've known each other since the eighties, right? I mean, yeah. WrestleMania four and five was that, I remember one time Vince told me that they were uh, watching some concert or something at Trump. Trump, whatever it was called, the New Jersey, whatever the, the arena was called, Trump Arena. Right. And uh, Vince was sitting there with Linda and Donald and all the heads of state. And Lin- uh, Vince lit up a joint. And uh, Trump was like, you can't smoke a joint in here. He's like, I just did. <laughs> <laughs> just did, pal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think Bruce told me a story how Vince threw Bruce into like this big nouveau riche like golden fountain in atlantic state one of trump's places and just made a big commotion at one of those wrestlemanias but um yeah, it was interesting interesting like vince would sometimes get hot at like donald for their promos because donald's like a deceptively big cat he's like six he four he really is and, yeah. and he's got these big so he'd wear like this winter jacket and vince was just swore that he had patted his shoulder pads and looked bigger than vince and man one time we were going to the airport and the two limos kind of line up for the, the, the private airport. Uh, another reason why riders get a lot of heat taking the private plane right. from A to B. Uh, <laughs> can't see why that's a likable quality for a rider. Right. Uh, so, you know, Vince, you know, is right next to Donald's uh, limo and Donald, his, his window goes down. And Vince goes, he wants to say something. Let's open our window. And Trump goes to Vince, hey, Vince, uh, I noticed your jet looks a little smaller than mine. If you guys are going to be squished, I, I could definitely get a few of your guys in mine. Mine's a lot bigger, obviously. And Vince goes, ha, 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 no, we're fine. Donald didn't have a great trip home. Close the window. His face is turning like purple. He's like, that son of a bitch. You know, he's got so <laughs> hot over that. It truly was a battle of the billionaires. It's the classic who's the, you know, my dick is bigger than your dick, right? <laughs> Dude, like I said, a lot of measuring going on. But it was like in fun. It was a ball busting. Like there wasn't really animosity. No, and then they all made some good money off it too. So that's, yep, that's a, a lot of money. Just to uh, get more uh, into your your work after WWE, so MLW for me, I first heard it from your podcast, the MLW Podcast Network, and listening to you and Conan and, and uh, <laughs> Mr. San Laurent, and that's where uh, I thought, well, Conan should probably have his own show, and then he came to do some stuff over on the, the Jericho Network thing, so... So MLW was a podcast, is a podcast network, but also too is, is is a company that's really expanding and growing. Did you start them both at the same time? Did one predicate the other? Kind of tell us how MLW came to be. Well, originally it exists in 0204. My dream was never to go work for WWE or WCW. My dream was to work for Paul Heyman, another Westchester guy uh, here in New York that, that had something really wild. But of course, by the time I was ready to go out there and do that, his company had closed. 
Uh, so I decided I'll, I'll run my own. And from 22 to 24, I did that. And we were on TV in Japan, the UK, uh, all over the US. We were on Sunsport, all these different channels. Had Joey Styles as our, our broadcast announcer and had the old ECW production team in the house in, in, in here in New York. And so it was very similar. What year was this? 02 to 04. Oh, and wow. we had guys like Doc Death and Terry Funk and Sabu and CM Punk and Daniel Bryan and Teddy Hart and uh, Harry Smith when he was 18 along with TJ Wilson. And one of our shows, they literally were studying for their for the midterms in high school back home in Calgary. So, you know, it was an eclectic bunch, bunch of young guys, old guys, and, and kind of very much an ECW feel. Uh, and then we hit the pause button. And then I brought, in 2011, Mr. St. Laurent said, let's let's get rid of these DVDs in the warehouse. So let's do a short run podcast series. I was like, podcast, whatever. If you want to do it, great. And then Conan did the second one. And then Conan insisted I do it with him. And so we did this and then create a whole podcast network uh, that, you know, Jim Cornette's podcast and just Bruce Pritchard and all these guys started to do it. And there was no business plan for it. And all of a sudden we have the you know, Omaha States as sponsors and of course, Blue Chew and all these other crazy guys. So uh, that grew tentacles. And then the rapper Wale wanted to do uh, an activation for his album in 2015 during a WrestleMania show, uh, the album about nothing, which he did with Jerry Seinfeld. So Wale's like, let's do something with, with the MLW network and I've known Wale from other stuff. And so we created Wale Mania, which, oh. you know, it's awesome. It's awesome having you involved with that. And you <laughs> definitely are the unofficial king backstage in those really crowded green rooms <laughs> that are brutal, but they're, they're a lot of fun. But um, that was one of those things that we just didn't see. And we, that we did that in Orlando. We did that in New Orleans. We did that for every year starting in 2015, moving forward. And it was one after Orlando 2017 that Wale and Mr. San Laurent were like, dude, you should bring back MLW just for one show. I'm like, dude, I don't want to be a promoter ever again. Uh, but they convinced me to do it. We did a show in uh, Orlando later that year in 2017. And within three to four weeks, I was meeting with networks about possibly doing a weekly series. And we landed with BN Sports. And now we have two shows on the air every week, one in English and one in Spanish. And we outperform everything but their soccer, which is, you know, they have Barcelona versus Madrid. So that says a lot. We outperform. Mm -hmm. Uh, Vander Holyfield boxing, their MMA, WTA tennis, motocross, all that stuff. So, you know, we've come a long way in a short period of time. And again, I just didn't have a business plan anticipating any of this. I, I probably would have thought, you know, I, I'll do anything but this, but this is just how it ended up. Just classic wrestling, I guess. It's interesting because, like you mentioned, being a promoter, like I, I never wanted to be a promoter either. And suddenly I ipso facto am with the cruises that I do. It, it's interesting to me for MLW and the fact that you have so much steam because you know, obviously wrestling is such a talent-based uh, you know, business and with so much talent being signed up all across the world, you're still able to have pretty much a, a roster that's exclusive to MLW and it's not like a bunch of ragtag you know, near-do-wells. There's a lot of great talent, to be honest with you. There's some talent on your show that I'm like, why isn't, why aren't, are they on AW? And it's like, well, right. Court's got them, you know, with MLW. So, uh, you know, th that's a whole different world for me. H how are you attracting these guys and signing them to contracts uh, in this world where it's million dollar contracts, you know, from WWE on down? Well, the thing is, once I knew we were going to TV, I knew I had to have paper on people. Yeah, yeah. I think if, you know, if you look back and I, I love Heyman, if he had had paper on a lot of the guys, he wouldn't have probably had the, the volatility he had in the mid-90s. He probably would have had more stability and been able to do more and grow it. But he lived in a t 
time where it was just handshakes come in let's keep keep doing what we're doing build on that and you know i, I think you got to be careful with that just in, i didn't i could not have anticipated in 2017 and aew and all this other stuff and how volatile it's become the thing that we have that's created the stability for us is a great partner in bm sports like there's no way i probably would do what we're doing now and selling out you know Cicero Stadium in Chicago in front of 2,300 people next week or Dallas and all this other stuff. We're putting guys under contract if it wasn't for that, that, that deal. I mean, content is king and TV rights are meaningful. And because of BN, we we're able to put people under contract. And because we're able to now produce a weekly show, we have them in over 14 countries. We recently outperformed WWE, I think it was like mid-September in the ratings in the UK for one of their shows. So it's like, I, you know, we don't have the advertising budget. We kind of are still the best kept secret in wrestling, but it's like the stability probably comes with just, you know, I've been, I'm, I'm 41, but I've been around this business since I was 18 and just kind of, I, I'm very young, very early on. I was working right under Vince. So you can pick up a lot sure. from being there. It's like getting your, your NBA in pro wrestling from the Harvard of pro wrestling at that time. And so, uh, you know, just trying to beat people to the punch and play money ball and, and find undervalued, underutilized talent, sign the contracts, give them the flexibility to go out there, use our TV to work elsewhere. And in certain instances, you have a guy like MJF who uh, we've had under contract since 2018. And now he's on two national TV shows. Not many guys have that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's been able to thrive. And so, you know, it's just finding a way and finding our own lane, you know, and I can't compete. Uh, I really don't want to try to compete in the same sandbox as WWE. You can't compete in that same sandbox as AEW. So we have to find our own and we just do things a little differently, whether it's, you know, the type of music, the presentation, you know, trying to speak to our fans differently. And that's how we've been able to compete. You know, I, I couldn't, it's too proud of those, of those other sandboxes. So, you know, we tried like our entrance for our, our show every week. That intro is a Wale song, you know, just a little bit of hip hop. Right now, there's really no other shows doing that in wrestling, just to have something a little different. Yeah, a little bit different, right? Yeah, just a little different. It means that helps us. You know, people were sleeping at the time on guys like Brian Pillman Jr., who's very young. But, you know, Harry, Davey Boy Smith's a great example. It's like New Japan was just doing nothing with him. And, and Teddy Hart, who I've known for a million years, I somehow convinced Vince to sign him in 2007. And kind of him, I guess, is whisper to some extent. And have, you know, was able to cobble together uh, Harry and young Brian and Teddy. And we trademarked the Heart Foundation because it had lapsed in the late 90s. And wow. now we have, yeah, we have the Heart Foundation. And we also had War Games, which uh, we, we have uh, we since have uh, sold. But You're kidding me. You were, you were able to get those trademarks. Wow. Yeah. No, I, dude. Yeah, that's the, IPs are king. <laughs> IPs are king. Hey right? man, trust me. Uh, one thing Gene Simmons told me. He goes, he said, copyright everything. And I'm like, I have 18 copyrights of every damn single thing I've ever thought of, from yep. Noah's a four letter word to Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rager at Sea. Because, like you said, if you don't own it, someone else will. Oh, very quickly. And in wrestling, it's a monkey see, monkey do world. So there, someone's going to take it, even if it's your idea, even if you nailed it, they're going to take it. You know, it's interesting because I see, you know, you mentioned like the Hart Foundation and Teddy was signed very young and obviously was very crazy at the time. But it's a no brainer because they all have direct lineage to the hearts. They're all this isn't like a a bullshit Hart Foundation. They're all exactly, uh, you know, uh, you know, related to the family. So I'm surprised no one else has thought of that 
before. I mean, it's a great mix, and all those guys are, are very dynamic in different ways. Yeah, and they're kind of like our free birds, just like, you know, Buddy had a certain role, Michael had a certain yeah. role, and Terry had a certain role. Like, these three, their strengths are great, and they they, they master their weaknesses, and they complement each other. So, it, as a trio, it really works great for us. And then, you know, we find, like, the Von Erich boys, uh, Ross and Marshall. Right. They've been they've been just doing international stuff a lot in Japan, but no one had done anything with them. So I linked up with Kevin, and it was serendipitous that it worked out that they did the Vice thing. We had already signed them; we just hadn't announced it. So when you see the the very emotional last Von Eric Vice from special, the uh, Dark Side of the Ring, yeah, which was a beautiful episode. Uh, just it was you know by the end you see the the son with the the sons with the father, and just it just it's so powerful that there's this new hope, and it's the boys, and I'm thinking to myself. And we're the next chapter, and it's, it's it's you can't get a realer moment in wrestling. Uh, and those boys are great, and so they're in the mix. Then you have Los Parks, uh, L.A. Park, and his son. So we have like a lot of families in our <laughs> in our pro, in our in our league that you know just it wasn't by design; it just happened that way. Jacob Fatu is another example of that. You know, we've he's our world champion and an incredible, just a freak of an athlete. You know, I was, I'm looking at the Von Erichs just to go back to that. Yeah. And, you know, with the legacy that they have and the name value and they're two just like good looking guys. Yeah. Why had nobody snapped them up? WWE, they offered a deal. They turned them down. They took oh. our deal instead because they like living in Hawaii. They liked, you know, oh, wow. they like the lifestyle um, and our schedule worked and they, they're just family guys. And Gary Hart had a connection with Kevin and I knew Kevin. So this has felt like a more comfortable path for them. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, you know, it's one of those things where I see like the Hart Foundation and the Von Erics. I'm like, Court's a smart guy because, you know, Jacob Fatu, he's the one guy I was like, wow. He's like, man, that's that's a, a guy that would be ripe for the picking for some of the major league positions, you know, but it's, it's great that you have them kind of locked in with you. Yeah, and Alex Hammerstone's another great guy, just a freak. Is he an English guy, or where's he from? He's from Phoenix, Arizona, okay. and he's just a great guy. Just He just did his first tour of Japan for us, for Noah, and just has charisma, has poise, has just can go bell to bell. Uh, and he's part of this group called the Dynasty with MJF and mm-hmm. Richard Holiday. All three great guys that could carry a company as heels uh, in the future. And so we're just, you know, just grooming these guys. They're bouncing off of teams like the Von Erichs and the Hart Foundation, just great heels. And it's weird because it's not, it's like just accidentally, I found myself booking a lot of weird acts where it's like just everyone's a trio act. And it's worked pretty good for us so far. When you talk about, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at some of these other guys on your roster. You mentioned MJF, for example. How did you end up doing a deal with AEW to allow him to do both? Well, you know, as you know, probably better than most, you know, Tony Khan's just a great guy. Right. And so you get on the phone with him, you meet with a guy like that. It's uh, the conversations are, are just easy to have because there's no animosity. Uh, he's a real nice guy and, you know, pretty straightforward. And so am I. I'm not as nice. He's much nicer. <laughs> but, but, you know, so it, we've had we've, we've had many conversations and I'll tell you, they're always very positive. So. Uh, if there's a way to do these things, we try to make it work. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same instance with Tony Schiavone, uh, who started with us on the podcast and was anchoring our show. And so, you know, we have a conversation and if we can make a deal happen, we do. And it's, it's worked out great. You know, I, I can't, I can't say enough good about Tony. I know it's probably supposed to be as a, as another competitor, I'm supposed to say all these horrible things and talk shit. I like Tony. I'm sorry. <laughs> right, right. 
No, and and that's the thing. It's like why why does it have to be? You know, if you're not WWE, it really doesn't matter. Why does it have to be so so much like oh, this company versus that company versus that company when it's right to to do cooperation together? Why not do it? Yeah, and I, I think people, you know, like it was funny. There was this reporter, I think it was from Bleacher Report, that interviewed me about AEW, and they tried to bait me into talking shit. And I'm like, no, nah, I'm, I'm cool with I'm cool with AEW. I'm cool with Tony. And they didn't run like any of the quotes. They just ran like one innocuous quote. But, you know, it's like the reality is because they just wanted to see the animosity that you know, that's sexier to sell that, oh, this guy's saying something. Well, you're not going to get that from me. But I think, you know, I want AEW succeed just as much as I want MLW succeed. All right. Maybe I want MLW succeed just a little more. But, you know, it validates the narrative that Vince isn't the only guy that can do this. You know, for 20 years, he's put out there and rightfully so that this is WWE is the place to be synonymous with wrestling. WWE is wrestling. But now you have this this success story blooming with AEW, with MLW. There's this immense appetite for non-WWE content and properties. And so, you know, there's not just WWE if you want to do a toy deal. There's not just WWE if you want to do, you know, a sponsored play or touring. And if AEW is successful, it validates that, hey, not just Vince can do this. We all can do this if you know what you're doing. And I think that's important. I think it's important for the health of wrestling. I think it's for the boys. I think it's for the fans. It's you. You should not be, you know, saying you want to see one company go down. That's really foolish because in the aftermath of WCW going out, ECW going out, there was like the scorched earth effect, and it's just there was it was so impossible to get anything going, and to get TV deals internationally, and to get toy deals, and to get any kind of backing, whether you wanted investors, TV rights, whatever, it was impossible. So you want these things to thrive. You don't, I see on social media, everyone's like, oh, down with this company, screw that company. Like, guys, you should just be loving it all. And yeah, have it a la carte, have it your way, but you shouldn't, it shouldn't be Yankees versus Red Sox. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What about the, the the Mexican connection? I, mean, I know from the start, I mean, you you kind of were the first guy to bring in Pentagon and Phoenix, and now you have. I mean, like you mentioned, L.A. Park is 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 with you fairly. And I'm looking, and there's another big match at Super Fight with uh, Septembo Dragon and Gringo Loco and Puma King. Like these, are, I don't know if those might be all American guys dressed as Mexicans, but <laughs> there is definitely a, a Mexican uh, element there. Yeah. I mean, well, Conan's one of our agents and uh, I go way back with Conan. I was at one point the president of AAA's American Enterprises. Uh, I was an advisor to Lucha Underground. So between that and Conan, you know, I'm, I'm pretty well versed in Lucha and I, I haven't worked with Dorian Roldan, you know, kind of sensing what would work in America, how you properly promote and market to first and second generation Americans was very important to me. That's part of our lane. You know, we have a great show in Spanish every week that does well that's my competitive advantage. That's my strategic advantage. So why not play to that? So now more than half of my audience is Mexican-American, the first, second generation Mexican-Americans that are looking for something that's authentic, a piece of the homeland to go out there and see live or watch live every week. And LA Park's like one of the biggest stars along with a lot of these guys. And Conan at one point was the Paul Hogan of Mexico, as he'll always remind you. As I think, what did he say? You, you think you, I think he, he said that you said that he was more over than the Easter Bunny, or maybe he said that no, about no, no, himself. No. He said that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We were at the mall, and he said it was on Easter, and uh, there was more people asking him for autographs than the Easter Bunny. And he said, <laughs> "Look, I'm more over than the Easter Bunny on his day." <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, Conan is in that uh, in that uh, space like like Tommy Dreamer is making the most paychecks off the most different companies that they can figure out. Yeah, and you know he's such a sharp mind. He has one of the best eyes in terms of talent recruitment, especially in Mexico. Uh, he knows how to. You know, the art of a good agent too is not only just to to help contribute to the finish, but to to work and coach up the talent to their best potential. Um, you know, that's in my mind what a great agent is. Another time, it was probably just being a stooge, but for <laughs> for what I look for, it, it really is to try to you know enhance and further things along. So, you know, Conan's been great, you know, and, and I've known him for a long time. So to have him be a part of the podcast, be a part of the league it, it has been great. And, uh, you know, he's, he's seen a lot, you know, he's seen promotional wars in Mexico and the U S and he's drawn money, you know, having someone in your system that has drawn big time money is really important because a lot of guys talk and give a lot of advice in the business. It's great to hear that, especially if you're a young talent from people that have drawn money. Right, 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 right. Exactly. So I guess uh, explain a little bit, what your your mindset is as a promotion what do you do that's different uh as far as to what else that you can see because i know fusion is your tv show you run that every week now you've got you know pay-per-views every month you mentioned you sold out the cicero stadium and what's what's the difference between mlw and wwe shall we say yeah i mean i just i don't no writers no creative team no writers either wow interesting no i i don't like i was part of a creative team and my experience is that creative teams don't work I think it's very difficult for a lot of reasons. You know, you have the political dynamic. You have just so many people trying to compete with your ideas. You get a hodgepodge of wrestlers, writers, and other personnel. It creates like, it's like this Petri dish of sorts of ideas. And, you know, it, when you're a booker, it's like, you know, you create like kind of, you work backwards and you create your ten poles. You know what you need to do to draw, you know, to draw. You got to draw money. You know what key, you know, when you're booking, it's all about the finishes. And it's all about getting heat. I mean, when I was on a writing team one time, someone said, one of the writers goes, I think Dusty came in the room and said, man, we need to get some heat tonight. And the writer goes, what's heat? And Ted DiBiase almost did a, a, a bump out of the chair, just couldn't believe that someone would have said that. Just went, Phew. And, you know, does not understand some of those fundamentals was shocking to me. Uh, so we don't, we don't really go into that. I book things and if it works, great. If it doesn't, that's on me too. Uh, and, and I think that's important. And so for us, you know, it's, it's just trying to showcase different styles. We position MLW as a combat sports league where you can see just about any style. Davy Boy Smith's catch wrestling, L.A. Park busting out Lucha Corpse planches, Mance Warner rampaging with the chainsaw. Uh, and that kind of, you know, that kind of thing, plus playing to the first, second generation Mexican-Americans is important. You know, we're, we aren't that, for that product probably for the diehard wrestling fan with the Bullet Club shirt. That, they got their jam. For us, it's that dude that likes wrestling that maybe hasn't watched often recently that feels, you know, he wants something real, a little wild, uh, has a few beers and wants to see something crazy, a little more combat sport oriented. So that's kind of like our, our lane along with, you know, we don't want it to feel like wink, wink. We're in on the, on the joke or the intricacies of the business. It's a more straightforward uh, kind of a gonzo TV style product. You know, we got an hour. We, we constantly are moving at you fast. We don't do a lot of promos in the ring. It's just action, action. And, and you know, we're not afraid to get outside and get a little into the weird zone. And that doesn't mean script. It just means, like, we might say something people like, I can't believe they just said that on TV. Not for the shock value, because we want it to feel real. When we do pre-tapes with guys, we kind of give them an outline, and then we can tell MJF or Hammerstone or Holiday, now kind of make this your own 
and have a conversation. And you know, you know what you're trying to get out of this. You're talking shit about the hearts. Let's get some heat. So I guess my question is when you were getting ready to start up again, shall we say, um, there's there's an investment that you need to make. Did you have to get a sponsor to help you start up, or is it something you're able to do just kind of all in house? Because I was just thinking about the Von Erichs, and you're talking about flying them from Hawaii to right. New York. Just that alone is going to be you know thousands of dollars for two guys, and that's you know you got thirty guys in the roster coming from Mexico, etc. Just seems like there's a lot of expenses there. Yeah, well, you know, the key thing, two things there are we did have sponsors early on before we were actually on TV. We had Totino's Pizza. We had a video game. Uh, and that helped us. That definitely helped us. But Shout out to Totino's really, Pizza. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, they pay the bills. That's right. And they that along with our, our rights deals, you know, media rights deals are precious. And so now we're in 14 countries. Uh, we're in UK, Ireland, Israel, uh, Africa. Uh, Canada, U.S., you know, all these countries, you know, that's that's how we really cover our bills and take it, you know, take it sales, of course. But media rights, I mean, that's the biggest driver right now in the business. And, you know, for us, 14 countries is a good start. But in the next year, I want to be in a lot more houses. You know, we, we do the big Sportel, Monaco conventions and stuff, and we shop the product aggressively internationally. You know, you look at the deals WWE gets, these billion dollar deals, and, you know, we're going to get, you know, a small, modest fraction of that, but that's how leagues exist, not just in wrestling now. It's, it's really based on content. Well, absolutely, absolutely. So, I mean, uh, and like I said, it's still very impressive to me that you're able to have such a, a talented, diverse roster that's pretty much, I'm not going to say they're exclusive, but like I, you know, like I mentioned, I'm not seeing Brian Pillman Jr. or, or, or Teddy Hart and Davey Boy Smith anywhere else exclusively kind of in, in your world. So it's very impressive. Like I said, it's very impressive to me. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a very competitive time. And I think because you have, you know, the key for us is having a network that gives us the ability to, to channel our audience and develop it. And BM has been incredible partners. They've been really good partners. Uh, I don't think we would have that strategic advantage in the Spanish and be able to do, I mean, we do very well in markets like Dallas, Chicago, New York, based off of that. Uh, but that's really important for us. And, and, you know, yeah, the contracts with the talent give us stability. And from that, you know, we just continue to try to grow, try to find our lane. And some people like to compare us to what ECW would be like in, in 2019 because we're not glossy. We're, we're lo-fi a little bit. Uh, maybe we have some, some an island of misfit toys, you know, like Loki and Teddy Hart and Austin Harris. Maybe Tom Waller if you ask Dana White. <laughs> but and we're a Westchester company and stuff, but you know, it's, it's just kind of like we're the little engine that could, and it's been incredible. I never would have expected this journey to take us where it has. And now we have strategic partners in Mexico. We have strategic partners in, in Japan with Noah and continues to grow this thing. You know, I think the biggest challenge you have with a company like this is trying to match contracts with other companies. Uh, and I think like, you know, that's, that becomes difficult in ECW with Rob Van Dam, maybe they should have let him go. They wouldn't have had the cash flow issues trying to make, you know, ends meet in 2000, 2001 and try to rebuild and regenerate a new generation. Uh, because you just, you're not going to be able to match everyone on a contract. You're going to have to understand that, but the fan base is going to know, okay, they're going to have a new generation come in and you're just going to see them organically blend with this generation. So it naturally segues. That's that's part of it, you know, and that's part of booking. And I don't think you can do that really with a writing team. You have to have those instincts and it takes time. Uh, and you have to have a flow and understand of where your talent is contractually, creatively, and, and where the fans are with that. 
it's something I'm explaining. There's a difference between writers and bookers. I mean, every wrestling company has a booker. You need that. Uh, then after that, the writer is kind of a WWE thing at this point in time. But yeah, you know, like you said, there is a big difference between the two. Yeah, I mean, like they just writers aren't involved with laying out finishes. They want good drama and or levity sometimes, but you don't get what draws money. And that to me is the biggest part of being a booker. You got to know what draws money. Who's going to draw money? How you develop them, produce them. You know, writers give you a script. If you work for MLW, we give you, hey, we're, this is where we're going with this. Let's come up with something crazy and get people interested and get some heat. And I'll give you a broad outline of where I'm thinking. And now you can make it better for me. And then we all win. Like, I don't think, you know, handing someone a script and saying, please, re remind, you know, try to recite this on live TV is going to work. I've seen that. It, it really, really, it very rarely does that work. Mm hmm. So just to talk about another one of your very marketable uh, talent, I'm talking about Selena De La Renta. She's very yeah. much exclusive to MLW, uh, and I haven't seen much of her as a result of that, but she's very much ensconced in, in what you guys are doing. Yeah, she started with us at 20, and she was one of the acts we found, um, and I was very impressed. You know, she she's learned three languages, self-taught. Uh, she's a prodigy. Jim Cornette says she's the next Sonny. She even blows away where Sonny was. Um, at that point in time, uh, she's involved behind the scenes. She's, she's part of the office too. So she sits in on production meetings. She's part of the post-production process. Uh, she's just a natural. She really is a prodigy in that two prodigies. I would say would be MJF and Selena, just like just pure money, pure fire all the way. You only have to tell her something once and she'll knock it out of the park. English is her second language, and you wouldn't even know. She's just so good at it. Very natural instincts. And, you know, also surrounding her with experienced people. She's done a lot with Conan, a lot with L.A. Park. She's even been to Mexico, which is great working in front of those crowds. So, you know, she's now she's 22, and she's just we, – we build a lot of our show around her. I have my, what I call my Fusion 5. Like, Heyman had his SmackDown 6 at the time. You know, having that ensemble, so you have – you know, you know you're building around multiple guys and just having the guy – that gives your show a lot of focus and a lot of priorities and, and you make sure those guys stand out head and shoulders above the others. So they feel like the true stars. Who are the fusion five? Oh, it changes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, right. I mean, like right now, uh, our fusion five is Fatu, Hammerstone, Davy boy, uh, Selena. Uh, and I'm leaving out someone I can't remember. It's probably good to leave that open. So I don't catch heat for leaving someone out. <laughs> exactly. of that. So, I'm just going to cover my ass there. It was you. You're the fifth one. I just forgot to name <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah. yeah. Very convenient. See, that's a, that's a good promoter trick right there. <laughs> See, you're learning, kid. You're learning. <laughs> um, you mentioned that uh, Gary Hart was one of your your mentors. Tell us a little bit about him, because that's the guy that I don't know a lot about. It's funny. I've been doing this for, for 29 years, and there's still people in the business that I, that I never met. And I know Gary isn't with us anymore, but I never crossed paths with him ever in my time in the biz. Yeah. He, and for those who don't know, he was the guy that um, was kind of one of the architects along with Fritz on world-class championship wrestling was a great man for nationally with uh, WCW with Muda and Funk in 89, 90 and was the guy that booked the dusty Rhodes babyface turn in 74, 75 in Florida was one of those kind of German wrestlers that got into a, a horrible plane crash in 74, I think in Tampa uh, survived it, but could never really work again, transitioned more to being a full-time manager and, and matchmaker, learned from Eddie, uh, Eddie Graham and Fritz and uh, Mark Lewin and the Lewin brothers. 
And I became a great, just a great developer of talent. Kind of created King Kong Bundy in the five count, one man gang, the Von Eric boys, Ultimate Warrior. He came with Dingo Warrior after a psychedelic trip when he was off in Australia once. <laughs> uh, the Dingo Warrior. Um, and, and it just was a really incredible creative force. Uh, and I got to know him through Terry Funk, uh, 22. You know, I think I know what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm doing. And Terry could see I was struggling. I didn't know how to book. Uh, you can learn a lot about the business, but you need someone that's booked to help you along. And I really didn't have that in my arsenal. And Terry connected me with Gary. And Gary really mentored me uh, and helped me along. And without Gary, I, I wouldn't have been able to really know anything about the business. Even though I'd been in the business for six, seven years at that point, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And it was Gary that really took my head out of my ass and, and told me what's up and, and helped me figure out how to book and, and the art of booking and the art of promoting. And I tried to return the favor by trying to suggest him for the creative team. And he ran from that because, of course, hearing my stories. But <laughs> at one point, he was actually supposed to – we were trying to get him to manage the great Kali when Kali debuted. Really? Yep. Uh, the three names suggested were we tried to get Ted DiBiase to do it uh, after Gary passed. And Ted said no. And ultimately, it went to a writer, Ranjan Singh. That's right. Why did uh, Ted say no that you know of? <sighs> he just didn't want to get – I don't think he wanted to get into that space again. Gotcha. Uh, he was an agent. He was a writer at the time or kind of a writer. Yeah. And I, I don't think he was ever really comfortable really during his run at WWE uh, just because he, he was an incredible genius in the ring. But he couldn't transition to being – uh, like a Michael Hayes or a Pat Patterson and trying it's to. So interesting that you say that. Cause I, I was there during that time. And I said, Ted wasn't a guy who could explain what to do. He just knew what to do yes. and did it better than almost anybody. It's like when they had Wayne Gretzky was the coach, of the Phoenix coyotes. It's like Gretzky can't tell you how to be great. He just is. And I felt the same about, about Ted DiBiase. Yeah, and then a lot of guys are like that. You know, a guy like Fit Finley is so special because right. he, he can coach and explain it and, and relay it. You know, Steamboat was, a, to me, one of the best wrestlers. And as an agent, I think sometimes it was hard for him to relay or convey what he could do as Ricky Steamboat to you to transfer that into the ring. I, I remember Ted talking like, man, I remember Bill Watts would try to tell me. He would try to channel Bill Watts and trying to give people advice. You know, and agenting is a tough gig and it's changed. What are the, what are you doing as an agent in 2019? And it's different from 2009. It was probably different from 88. You know, an, an agent from the late 80s was totally different from, from what you're doing today. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's 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 a whole a different uh, style and a different world. Um, just to close up on Gary Hart, you said that he, he really kind of got your head out of your ass. What kind of advice did he give you? No, just, you know, like I asked, I, I, I was like, I'm going to ask you a lot of dumb questions. Like, please, no questions dumb. And I would just ask just random questions about booking, about how you work with talent. How do you explain certain things to talent? You know, especially, you know, it's, it's hard when you're young or at any age. To, if, if, you, if you're working with a talent that's drawn money, they're going to have their They have a very specific way in how they see things. And they're right to. They've drawn money and there's a sense of conviction. But you have to try to work with them, and sometimes it can be difficult. Sometimes it can be easy. So one of the key things, and it's it's a it's a it's an important part of being a booker, is the art of manipulation. Whether you're manipulating a crowd, whether you're, whether you're manipulating anything, uh, that is an important tool. And as Conan would say, you know, there's a few other tools as a booker you use, but those I didn't know. I didn't have any of those skills. I didn't have any of that experience. You know, even understanding finishes didn't really have a clue. 
and and so when you can ask a lot of these questions, or we, we would just watch Raw and then afterwards talk it through and and break it down, it was very helpful. And even when I was at WWE, I'd, I'd call on him and say, "Man, let me let me pick your brain on this." And so he was <laughs> he had input on the on the WWE product. I mean, he definitely I ran stuff about Umaga by him, stuff about Great Khali, uh, those kind of monsters. And definitely, there's some of that Gary Hart DNA in them. As we start to to wind down here, um, I'm looking kind of at the lineup for for the super fight, and Jimmy Havoc is involved uh, once again. Another kind of a, a AEW talent as well. Uh, what is Jimmy Havoc's slaughterhouse, and do I really want to know? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me put it this way: we shot it in Tijuana. Uh, oh, it's so, not yeah, really. it was, okay, gotcha. Yeah, we have, it, it aired uh, this past weekend. And so once, once, once in a while, we'll just theme out a show. Like Celine De Laurenti will exec produce an episode. So it's a very Lucha-focused show, and she's up to no good. And she's, you know, I don't believe in general managers and stuff, but this is a nice way to kind of shake things up when you do 52 weeks of TV. So Jimmy got the focus, and the whole show was kind of built around him and his vision, a twisted vision of what MLW would look like that week. And so, it's, you know, he's fighting Damian 666, and Savio Vega and a Tijuana death match. And there's a street fight that we actually shot in the streets of Tijuana. <laughs> uh, again, it's a Gonzo South thing. We had one camera shooter, Charlie Brzees, who was the uh, ECW shooter, running through Tijuana with, with the son of uh, L.A. Park and Joseph Samael, just and they're literally going through tables that we have no idea whose table is and the breaks and you know, Joseph doesn't realize there's nails in it and stuff. So it's, you know, again, it is a little bit of that weird kind of running gun ECW style, I guess. But uh, that was that was Slaughterhouse. And so maybe next year you know, we'll, we'll have Mance Warner Slaughterhouse and we'll do something different for a, ha- a ha- you know, Halloween theme show. Now, is this the original Damien 666? It is. Oh, my gosh. That guy's such a character. My very first Japanese tour ever with FMW in 1991. He was on it. He was Ultraman back then. <laughs> <laughs> I pop so big. We walk across the border to Tijuana and we're just like, what, what, what happens? We don't know. They're saying they're going to pick us up at some point and bring us to the arena. And I see this big white van and Damien 666 is hanging out of it as it swerves around. He's like, Hey, amigo, come in. I'm like, Holy shit. Damien 666 is picking us up. This is awesome. <laughs> and just a great guy. And his son wrestles now bestia 666. He's yeah. fantastic. But just talking with Damien, just a great cat. Can't I can't say enough good about him. And uh, he's still out of TJ doing his thing. And uh, I used to love watching him in the '90s. You know, whether it was in FMW and, and or in Mexico and all the crazy stuff he did with Promo Stack or WCW. Just a fun, fun different type of luchador. He's such a character. Uh, <laughs> amigo, do you like Puerno? What? Do you like Puerno? Puerno? <laughs> I still pull that with my friends for a while. Do you like Puerno? <laughs> oh, man. So so as we start to wind down, like I said, um, you've done a, a great job here building this company. And like you mentioned, it's only been over the last couple of years, which is so insane how much you've, you've done over that time frame. So what what do you, I guess, what do you plan and, and want to do with MLW over the next few years? Just keep finding great talent keep growing our global uh, footprint on TV deals and just pump this bitch up. You know, just, you know, the biggest challenge a company like mine has is, you know, managing growth. You know, you don't want to burn out fast. So it's just kind of like sometimes you have to say no to sometimes what you think is a great deal, whether it's a TV deal, toy deal, video game deal. I've turned down two video game deals because I knew that wasn't the right time. 
but you just got to manage your growth. That's the biggest challenge you have. And not why, why wasn't it the right time for a video game? Uh, the money wasn't right, and on on one of them, and the other deal, the the game just I thought was going to suck. I just looked looking gotcha. at like what there was. I'm like, you know, the, the problem with if a video game sucks, there's, you're not kicking out. You're not getting a second chance on that. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. And, but the part the hardest problem as a promoter is temptation. It's like it's so intoxicating to have all these things coming at you to turn them down is difficult and that's the managing that is part of the process it really is uh but just for us to just continue to grow get more eyeballs globally and, and that's 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 what it's all about you know just staying in our lane growing it and yet not being too rigid to stick where we are sometimes you're gonna have to move and be something else you know and you have to be open to that do you um you said you have a, a relationship with um with with noah in japan yes do you send your guys over? Do they send you guys, send you guys over as well type thing? Yep. It's one of those things. And uh, we sent Hammerstone over there for a month. And I think he was thrilled to get home after a month there. But it's a month. That, wow, that, yeah. Dude, he left August 13th, came back, I think, September 15th. And like, it's a long time. That's a long time. But, you know, the, the, the thing about that is your work just levels up so fast when you get to spend a concentrated period of time over there. The, the caliber of workers are working different styles, different, different atmosphere. And that's the only thing nowadays that you don't have is unless you're in WWE and you have this insane schedule, you're not getting the reps in. So going over to Japan or working in Mexico for a tour, that's very helpful. What's the best uh, match that you've seen so far in MLW uh, in the last few years, if you had to pick a couple of them? Man, I would probably say there was um, – Probably the Timothy Thatcher versus David Boy Smith match we did in New York this summer was like a classic, just real purist wrestling match. One of my favorites. Uh, hmm. I really love that. You know, it just depends on what your, your flavor is. We, we had a great match with the Lucha Brothers last year. It was great. We did what something called a battle riot where there's 40 wrestlers enter. It's like a Royal Rumble, but you can pin someone, submit someone. Those are really fun and different. Uh, and, you know, Fact 2's emergence in, in MLW has been a great story. His match with uh, Tom Lawler in Chicago at Cicero Stadium July. Just seeing him just do these crazy things, just, it just he breaks gravity. So it's just, you know, just I'm more, I'm really into like the, the Davy Boy Smith catch wrestling mm-hmm. thing right now. But that's the thing about our thing. We have different styles. We have the, the wild shit from Mance Warner and Jimmy Havoc. You have Jacob Fat 2 doing his thing in LA Park, doing Lucha style just a little bit of everything for everyone you know so uh i think that's what makes our our practical difference we try to showcase everything through a prism of sport and so for our pay-per-view on uh, november 2nd you know that's what we hope to showcase a little bit of everything texas tornado tag match with the von erics against mjf and dynasty trios lucha match with guys like puma king and gringo loco and justice uh, i think it's gonna be fun and then you have you know just teddy hart and austin aries you know, just a, you know, <laughs> boy, oh boy, you know, <laughs> that's going to be funny. funny. We were, uh, we were in, uh, where were we last week in Philadelphia and I was just getting ready to do whatever the hell I was doing. I was getting ready for my match and just like an apparition <laughs> appeared beside me as Teddy Hart. I'm like, what are you doing, dude? He's like, oh, yeah, I live in uh, wherever the hell. I live in Philadelphia now. I just thought I'd come by. And I'm like, <laughs> he just he just appeared. Where the hell did you come from? He just he's that type of guy, and, right? And he had his cat, right? Uh, he did not have the cat, but he had full regalia, uh, the pajama, the, the sparkly pajamas that he wears. 
you know, the whole thing. We, we've gotten to the point. <laughs> I, have, I have no shame in saying that we now merchandise the Teddy Hart cats, Mr. Money. So we, we have, we to. have to, we have plush dolls. We sell that we've sold out on those. And, uh, it's, it, we have no shame, man. We'll merchandise anything. We have, uh, the, the Von Eric foam fingers and stuff, the claws and everything. You got to do that. So good. <laughs> do you tape your TV? Do you fusion pretty much across the country or do you specifically do it in New York or Florida? Or? Yeah, we, we have our loops. Our loop is basically Chicago, New York, Philly, Dallas, Orlando. I might be missing a town, but like just pinballing off of those markets. There are hot markets. This year we've sold out all but one show. I think it's like 80, we've sold out like 87.5% of our shows. They're range in size from one to 2000 seat buildings or Cicero's a little bigger. We ran out of chairs in Dallas. We could have sold more seats there, but that's our loop. And it's been really incredible for us. And like, you know, everyone's saying it's such a competitive time, but I think fans love the competition. And like, I look at just merchandise sales alone. We're up 800% over last year. That's great. That's, and so it's like this, I think there's a feeding frenzy. They want something different. They want different products. So mm-hmm. they want a little bit of this. They want a little bit of that. They, you know, and I think that's what's so beautiful about wrestling now is like, few clicks you can watch anything you want if you don't like it you can move on to the next thing and that's 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 what's great right now there's nothing wrong with having options that's for sure uh last question for you working for a couple years for vince he's such an interesting character is there a a specific vince story that stands out that's one of your favorites i like the one time he said it was a real tough day at the office and he's sitting there eating a roast beef wrap as he did a lot and he just looked up to us and goes sometimes you have to eat a big plate of shit and enjoy the taste of it. God damn. And it's like, okay, uh, that's one story. And then there was the one time, and actually this wasn't Bridgeport. Uh, I raced him down 95 and construction was in the left lane. He wouldn't let me over and flip me off and just peeled out in his Bentley. Uh, <laughs> he's just, he's, dude, that guy's so competitive. He didn't give a shit. Uh, but I, I, even in that respect, yeah. And I'll tell you though, like, I, I, I really enjoyed my time with Vince McMahon and learning from him. It was a, a great time to learn from him and never really had a problem at all. My experience with him, like a lot of people leave and they trash him and stuff. Vince was phenomenal, just great to work with. And, you know, I got to see him under some of the most dire moments and also some of the greatest successes in that short window, but just, you know, there's he's a once in a gener- once in a lifetime once in a century type of person a real force and you know it was a real i really enjoyed working with him and if i hadn't done that there's no way i could do what i'm doing now without that time that experience around someone like that even though i do it differently there's so much you can learn from someone like that yeah i i couldn't have said it different myself exact same exact same feelings for me as well so yeah well, we made it out of uh, out of WWE Alive Court. We did. We're both doing pretty damn good. So <laughs> congratulations on all the success and uh, definitely going to be paying attention to MLW and all the great uh, talent that you have there and uh, Super Fight and everything in between. So uh, congrats, dude. Oh, yeah, thanks. And everyone check us out. Uh, November 2nd, Super Fight. You can pre-order it on uh, MLW.TV powered by Fight TV. We're also on pay-per-view, Dish, DirecTV, all cable systems, 1995, Saturday night, Super Fight. You learn more at MLW.com. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. All right. Thanks to Court Bauer. You heard Super Fight on November 2nd. Pre-order it on MLW.tv or on the Fight TV app. And get yourself on the waiting list for Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rager at C Part 2. We're set in sale January 20th of this year, next year, 2020. We're completely sold out. No more cabins left, but the waiting list is open. Uh, you can still sign up for that. And there will be cabins that get canceled. People can't make it. They 
can't uh, can't put the funds together. So you can still go check that out. So uh, we want you to join Ric Flair, the NWO, Jake the Snake Roberts, uh, AEW is going to be there. Kenny, the Bucks, Cody, Brandy, Hangman Page, the Jurassic Express, uh, the Inner Circle, of course, Private Party. They're all going to be on the cruise. DDP is going to be there hosting my, uh, live DDP yoga workouts on the ship. Of course, Fozzie, Light the Torch, uh, Jared James Nichols, Kickaxe, Killer Queens, great uh, queen uh, tribute there from a uh, great bunch of uh, ladies, uh, uh, Rubik's Cube, the best 80s uh, tribute band I've ever heard of. Lots of great stuff going on uh, beyond the darkness telling paranormal stories. So go sign up for the waiting list, ChrisJerichoCruise.com. Go do it now. All right, coming up on Wednesday, it's Halloween week on Talk is Jericho, but it's Halloween rock and roll week. We've got two great episodes lined up, Paranormal Beatles and Paranormal Elvis. More stories than you expect for both of those hugely famous acts in the paranormal world. You're going to enjoy it. Uh, Paranormal Beatles and Paranormal Elvis coming up next Wednesday and Friday. So until then, have a great weekend. Stay hard, stay hungry. Peace, love, and hugs. And a big, yeah, boy!